0: We now come to the time of our sermon. And for the next three weeks, these, these, uh, the first three weeks of Advent, we're all going to be looking at the same passage of Scripture each week. And that's not because I only wanted to write one sermon and I'm going to do one sermon three times. It's because there's richness in this passage. And I think that this passage from Philippians chapter 2 can guide us into understanding the magnificence of what God has done that is celebrated at Christmas. And so this morning we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's printed for you in your bulletin, or if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you you that in it, we have a testimony of who you are. That you have revealed who you are and what you're about. And so you have given us insight into who we are in you. So I pray that as we look at this passage and reflect on the meaning of Advent. That you would work in our hearts, Lord, to seal to us the promises of the gospel. That you would work, Lord, to illumine our minds and our hearts. That you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ and his beauty and his glory. That our hearts may be awed and transformed. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Why? Hey, thank you for singing it. He's making a list. He's checking it not once, twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Who is it? Santa Claus is coming to town. Watch out. I'm not quoting the song anymore. Watch out. Watch out. Because when Santa Claus arrives, you are going to get what is coming to you. Now, I like Santa. I'm not saying anything bad. I like Santa Claus. I love Santa Claus. But I bring this song up in particular because it's one of my least favorite songs we sing at Christmas. It's one of my least favorite because I think it's easy for us to take this idea that you better watch out because Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. You're going to get what's coming to you. It's easy for us to take these ideas and transplant them from Santa Claus to God. To think of God as this cosmic list maker who's watching us from on high, intently keeping a record of all our wrongs and rights. To think that God looks at us, and he's hoping we're good little boys and girls, and that we think if we can be good enough, good enough little boys and girls, then maybe God will reward us with his love. But we know, deep down inside, that if that's who God is, that this is bad news. This is bad news because we know if God has been attentive, if he does see us when we're sleeping and he knows when we're awake, that he's seen not just the things we've done and said, but he's seen the very interior of our hearts, the things we've desired, the things we've thought and not said. He's seen the selfishness of our hearts. He's seen our mixed motives and our bad intentions. I think it's easy for us to think of God this way and imagine that if he came to town, we'd find ourselves lost, we'd find ourselves condemned and judged. Our passage this morning from Philippians chapter 2 is about what happened when God actually did arrive. What actually happened when God Came to town, and that's what's behind the celebration of Christmas this earth shattering idea that God came to us in His Son as one of us. This truth that turns absolutely everything on its head, that God took on flesh to dwell with us as one of us. Now, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this passage in depth, and I and this week I want to start out by pointing out a couple of things as we're entering into. Or actually already completely within this Christmas season. As I said, Philippians 2 is about what happened when God actually did arrive. That's who Jesus is, the Son of God, who reveals who God is to us. That's what the Gospel of John, which we didn't read this morning, means when it calls Jesus the Word. That Jesus is the true expression of who God is. What is a Word is communication. The book of Hebrews calls Jesus the radiance of God's glory, like the rays of the sun shining off. It calls Jesus the exact representation or exact reproduction of who God is. And when that uh, New Testament was written, that word was used for something that had been stamped a mold that had been stamped that makes a coin or a seal book of Colossians calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. All of these descriptions pointing to a fundamental truth of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ isn't just a religious guru. He's not just a great teacher, but he is God sent from God. So when Jesus speaks about God, he isn't simply dreaming up what he wishes was true. He's not a self-help writer that just puts his best ideas down and hopes they work. When Jesus speaks about God, he's speaking with insider knowledge. His words and his actions show us who God is. That's what Philippians 2 is about. It spells out the basic contours of who Jesus reveals God to be. So what do we discover about God because of Jesus? Well, I've broken this up into a couple of different sections. The first one is this. We discover that Christmas is not, you better watch out. Christmas is not, you better watch out. When God came to town, it was not, you better watch out, it was the eternal Son of God letting go of the glory that rightfully belonged to him, not grasping to hold it, to hold that status for his own good, but condescending and willingly humbling himself to take to himself the smallness and the frailty of our human nature. And he did this to succeed in all the ways that we fail and to succeed as one of us. It's noteworthy when Jesus arrived, he didn't just put on a human shell. I think we can think of it like God zapped down and he put on this, flesh robot's probably a bad description, but he put on this uh, costume, of, uh, a human costume, and he walked around. Um, you know, we, we even sing songs about it. What's the, what's the one? Uh, away in a manger. That the little baby Jesus didn't cry. No, no. <laughs> Jesus became human in every way. Taking on the fullness of our human emotions, not just the the things of a material body. And when Jesus showed up, when God in the flesh arrives, he didn't show up as a muscle-bound man. If I had uh, my way, if I was Jesus, and thank God I'm not, I would not have decided to become a very frail, vulnerable baby who spent my first night in a cave that was set apart for animals. I wouldn't pick a bed that is a feeding trough. I wouldn't come to a poor teenage mother. That's not how I would have done it. I would have come as a tall, muscle-bound man, the tallest, the most handsome, the most impressive person. Lots of money in my bank account. But he arrived as a baby. Not a wealthy baby, not born in a palace, not even born in the capital city of the region he lived in. He was born outside, in a small town, in Bethlehem. And he grew up in Nazareth, which was about the size of Spivey's Corner. The savior of the world, growing up in a town the size of Spivey's Corner, just down the road. Why would he do all this this way? Have you ever stopped to think about it? Why this way? Of all the options available for God and revealing who he is, why would he come to us as one of us in this way? Taking on not just human nature, but poverty. To show us that God is not out to give us. To show us that God is not just for the powerful or the influential. The wealthy and the impressive. That God is for us. That we don't have to make something of ourselves to impress him. He did not come to a palace and say, come to me. Come and show me homage. Come and show me honor. Travel to me. He came down into the ordinaryness. A profound ordinariness of life. That we who are not powerful, we who are not wealthy, we who feel very ordinary might know that God does not disdain our ordinariness. That we don't have to make something of ourselves. We don't have to go to a big city and find an impressive job and get on a career track to make something of ourselves for God to look down and love us. That His love pursues us even into the things that we might think are less than or shameful. That we don't have to ascend a ladder of society to win a bigger piece of his love. Not only that, you don't have to be perfect. You're a sinner. I am too. In fact, I preached about it a few weeks ago. I am the worst sinner I know. I've had people sit across from me and confess to me the worst things they've ever thought, said, and did. And I am the worst person I know. I don't know anybody who has acted in selfishness more often than me. But I know this also is a fact that my failures, my sin, is not an insurmountable barrier for God. It's not. That's what we celebrate at the Advent season. That Christmas doesn't mean you better watch out. That God's not showing up with a list that He has checked twice to make sure you get what's coming to you. That God has descended to get you. To save you, He is not after you in condemnation, but He is after you for freedom. He is chasing after you to free you from all that holds you bound. So God has shown who He is. is. And because of this, when we fail, and I don't mean in small ways, I don't mean you cuss when you stub your toe on the coffee table in the middle of the night, I mean when you fail big time. We have an invitation for this. Not to fail and think, oh man, Dad's going to kill me. But to come to God, to fail big and think, I need to call Dad right now. That's what we're invited to do when we call God Father in Jesus. Not to think of Him as someone who is just waiting for us to make that big enough mistake and we are booted out of the kingdom of heaven. But to know that even in the depths of our selfishness, that right away we can turn and we don't have to go anywhere to find God sitting us out. He's right there. He's right there. It's here that we find a love. I find a love that I can't lose because I didn't earn. I find a love that's stronger than my failures. I find a place where I can rest. A place where I can build a life. That I know is not going to give way. So hear me. Christmas is, you, is not. You better watch out. It's not God making a list that he checks twice. God's chosen not to do that. He could have done that. But Christmas is God is seeking you out and rescue, not judgment. A God who has set his love on us and a God who has moved heaven and earth to win us to himself. So that's my first section. Christmas is not, you better watch out. Here's my second one. Christmas is, is not, you better not cry. Not, you better not cry. I always really disliked that, that line in Santa Claus is Coming to Town because I am an emotional person. And I hated the idea that there was no place for my crying for... Because sometimes there's stuff worth crying about, guys. I don't mean like the selfishness of I didn't get the toy I wanted, but I mean that we live in a broken world. There's plenty that is worth crying about. But for some reason... We live in a world that has treated tears and grief and sadness as if they're a wrong, that they're shameful, and we have to cover them up. And Santa Claus has come to town and you better not cry. The idea is this, be good and don't cause a fuss. Tears are seen as weakness. But when God arrived into the world as one of us, it was not, you better not cry. It was Jesus descending to the depths of our experience to exhaust in himself the power of sin at its height so that we would not be consumed by the folly of our, sin, our own sin or the wounds of others against us. So when God took on human flesh and faced what we face, we cried, he cried. It's the amazing thing. The incarnation of the Son of God in Jesus Christ, him staring death in the face, the death of a friend in John 11, Lazarus, in the tomb, Jesus weeps. And he weeps bitterly because he had seen the sorrow and the grief that has been brought to people that he loves. We cry. He cried. Jesus doesn't stand stoically off to the side and say, are you done? Are you finished crying now? No. We suffer rejection. It's part of life. We suffer rejection. He did too. He did too. We go through loneliness. We go through the pain of being misunderstood. We live in broken families. He did too. He did too. We face betrayal in this world. We face the scars of others. He did too. He was the light of the world. And as He shined in these dark crevices, these crevices of the darkness of our experience, He ensured that we would never again, no matter what we face here, be alone. There's no part of our experience where God is not with us. And not just in the sense that he's God and he's everywhere, but also in this. That Jesus has inhabited our world and can sympathize with us in our weakness, as it speaks about in the book of Hebrews. That he does not disdain us in our weakness. That he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, as it says in Hebrews 2. But that he stands and declares, for God and for all to see, these are mine. This is my family. And because he's joined himself to us in our weakness, we can know that he has joined his powerful strength to us. And that's the good news of the last three verses of this passage. Jesus faced death on a cross at the hands of religious and political leaders drunk on their own power. And through that death, the justice of God against sin was satisfied because this innocent and righteous man willingly died the death of a criminal dying in our place. But that wasn't the end of the story. God vindicated Jesus and all that He said and all that He had done in His resurrection. And he exalted him to the highest place. He caused the light of Jesus' glory that had been obscured and hidden in his time on earth to shine even brighter as it does today. And Jesus, vindicated and resurrected from the dead, is forever the person in whom God and man has been reconciled. Jesus is the guarantee that our lives will not end in futility. Absolute guarantee. The death and the shame and the mourning and the pain of our world, the pain of your experience is not the final chapter of the story that God is writing for us. No, because we've been joined to Jesus with bonds of love that cannot be broken, we can know that what awaits us, the final chapter of our story, no matter the roller coaster of life, is vindication. That we will stand as sharers in the glory of God, and He will shine in the radiance of His glory, and we will shine as well with Him. That what awaits us... At the end of our pain and suffering is being made new in every way. Being healed in every way. Beyond the bad intentions of this world. Beyond the scars that others have inflicted on you. Beyond the selfishness of your own heart. And the foolishness of your own sin. And Christmas is proof of God's intentions for you. What awaits you is not shame. It's not condemnation. It is freedom and love. God sends His Son to bear the punishment our sins deserve and remove that condemnation and fulfill what we cannot. And He turns and gives us the benefits of His obedience as a gift. All that is His by right becomes ours by grace. And that's the crux of the gospel. This great exchange has occurred. He takes our sin and He gives us His righteousness. And we are righteous in God's sight. It's hard to believe. It is. At least I find it hard to believe. Maybe it's easier for you. Because my sin is great. And if I started standing here and listing to you every selfish action or word or thought, even from this past week, we'd be here until the sunset. And what that means for me and for you as well is that if we are walking into Advent or really any season of our life and we're only looking inwardly, for only turning to our own hearts to look inwardly at ourselves, that our confidence in life will ebb and flow depending on how our day is going. Depending on how perfectly you're doing the right things. And that's bad because I know, like, if I don't have coffee in the morning, my, day, my day's ruined. If my confidence is only on how I'm feeling, it's going to ebb and flow in some very terrible ways. But my confidence in yours as well is not bad. It's not. It's Jesus. Your confidence is about what we're going to sing in a moment from joy to the world. Not, you better watch out, you better not cry. But joy to the world. That's what God has brought to you. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Joy. Let earth receive her king and let every heart prepare him room. Or, no more let sin and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. Why? Because he has come to make his blessings known and flow as far as the curse of sin is fanned. So that thing in your heart that you are scared to even think about, Jesus has come to let his blessings flow to heal you. That thing that was done to you that you are scared to mention, Jesus has come To make his blessings flow to heal you. There is no dark crevice of your heart that is off and set off or set aside from his love for you. And his love is more powerful than your sin and definitely more powerful than the sins of others against you. So this Christmas, this Christmas, I want to put in front of you a quote that I've said before, but one that I love. For every one look you take at your own heart. And I'll extend that out. For every one look you take at your own family. For every one look you take at the sicknesses that have have, have ravaged people you love. For every one look you take at this world, take ten looks at Jesus. For every one look you take at your own heart, take ten looks at Jesus. Because He is altogether lovely. He's lovely beyond our ugliness. He's good beyond our badness. He is truth beyond our lies. For every look you take at your own heart and the anxieties of this season, stop and take 10 at Jesus. And what do we see in Jesus? A love, again, that we did not earn and cannot lose. A love that does not ebb and flow with how our day is going or how many coffee, cups of coffee you've had or whatever has happened to you. A love that is yours, period. For every one look you take at the brokenness of your family, or every one look, you take at something that you profoundly wish was different, take ten looks at Jesus. Keep looking to Him because He has come to make His blessings flow as far as the curse of sin is found. And that's the good news of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the glories of the Gospel. The glories of the Gospel that You show us in Jesus who You are and It is not an arrival that tells us you better watch out. It is not an arrival that stoically stands off from us. It says you better not cry. But you have chased us into the very depths of our experience to free us from it. You have joined us in our weakness that we might join you in your power. You have assured us where we are going. Your intentions for us and those intentions are to bring us joy. And blessings that flow as far as the curse of sin is found. Imprint this on our hearts as we are in this season, and not just this season, these next four weeks, but imprint this on our heart as we walk out into the rest of our lives, that we would learn that muscle memory, that impulse, that when we look inwardly, that we would take ten looks at Jesus, the very proof and guarantee of your love for us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.